0: Section 23 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 21. Economic and Social. Part 2. England and Wales may be said roughly to consist of 37 million acres, and a glance at the following table will show how these acres were and are distributed. Arable land, then, nine now fourteen and a half meadow including park twelve now twelve woods six now two unfit for cultivation ten now eight and a half the staple produce of england was corn the population being so much smaller and at the same time a larger part of it being employed in agriculture the country was easily able to supply her own needs of wheat The second produce was wool. England had long been a wool-growing country. Her meadows were famous for the breed of sheep. Her chancellor sat upon the wool sack. But it had been the custom to send all the wool over to the continent to be manufactured. Many English statesmen had regretted this, but the wool still went over. Then came small beginnings of the cloth manufacture in England, edward the third had imported families of cloth workers from the netherlands and it is said that in his reign the name worsted was given to the yarn made from spun wool after a small town of that name in norfolk in order to foster the manufacture in england various statutes were made to encourage the natives to exclude the foreign cloth in sixteen ninety six the latter was absolutely prohibited and in the reign of charles the second it had been decreed that every one was to be buried in woolen cloth in old church registers one may find the entry buried in wool further irish wool was prohibited and not only irish wool but irish linen of course englishmen could not complain when the same protective policy was repeated in another country and british as well as irish woolen goods absolutely prohibited in france of the english manufacture leeds was already the centre but it was a town of very different size from the leeds of today. its population is now thirty-seven times as large but in our days the woollen manufacture is only the third of english manufactures that of cotton being about two and a half times as large and iron standing second cotton was then beginning to raise its head and the policy that had always discouraged all rivals to english wool was repeated a statute was passed in seventeen hundred the year in which charles ii of spain died prohibiting the importation of cotton goods such as indian muslins and chintzes the competition however most to be feared was not the manufactured goods but the fibre imported from america to be made in england into goods and that business must have assumed some dimensions when in seventeen o one cotton goods worth twenty three thousand pounds were exported the amount is now three and a half times as many millions as thousands then other manufactures were still very young the coal fields were not largely worked as coal was only required for domestic purposes that from newcastle upon tyne was considered the best sheffield famous for its whittles even in chaucer's time kept up its reputation for cutlery though the manufacture was on a small scale the french refugees who settled in england and who vexed the tories because their protestantism was not that of the english church introduced several valuable branches of manufacture silk weaving was the chief but to these also must be added glass paper and hats all the gold and silver came into europe from america through spain entering by cadiz the golden gate of the indies there can be no doubt as regards the standard of comfort that the english people were far beyond other european nations ambassadors wrote to express astonishment that the food was so good that the consumption of beer, spirits, and foreign wine was so large, and that articles of luxury imported from distant lands were in such general use. An English writer of the time estimates, indeed, that only half the labouring class ate animal food more than twice a week, but in proportion to wages, meat was much cheaper then than it is now. The consumption of beer seems enormous, it was calculated that in the year after the revolution a quart a day was brewed for every man woman and child in england whereas the same calculation makes the amount in the present day sixty quarts per annum or just one-sixth it would not be a fair conclusion that the english are now a more sober people because less beer is drunk for a great deal that was brewed was very small beer The majority of the English people have three meals a day, breakfast, dinner, and tea, and it is only at one of these that the larger portion ever touch beer. The choice then lay between wine or spirits, cider, beer, milk, or water. It is to two beverages that have since passed into common use, tea and coffee, that the diminution in the amount of beer is due. Tea, or as it was then always pronounced, tay and gentle anna whom three realms obey does sometimes counsel take and sometimes tay pope was first brought into england by the dutch nearly a century earlier but during the whole seventeenth century it was regarded as a rare luxury mr pepys drank his first cup of tea on september twenty fifth sixteen sixty one describing it as a china drink of which I had never drunk before. In the reign of Charles II, the East India Company presented the king with two pounds of tea. But during the latter years of the century and through the reign of Queen Anne, its use as a beverage was rapidly spreading. We have an estimate of the consumption just after the accession of George II. It amounted in the year to seven hundred thousand pounds, and the price, depending on the quality, varied between thirteen shillings and twenty shillings a pound the amount imported into england in eighteen seventy two was one hundred and eighty five million pounds coffee was making its way at the same time coffee was imported from the levant which it easily reached from arabia its home it was first brought into england by a cretan gentleman who made it his common beverage at balliol college oxford in the year when the long parliament first met coffee became a social power earlier than tea the greek servant of an english turkey merchant from smyrna is said to have started the first coffee house in london in the time of the commonwealth about the end of the seventeenth century coffee houses were very common and important as a means of social and political intercourse amongst men they filled the place that is now filled by the london clubs some were chiefly political places of resort for only one party others especially the famous wills and covent garden were literary those who wished to see to hear or perhaps to bow to a prominent literary man such as dryden or addison would find him at the coffee-house these houses had great influence in the formation of opinions men nowadays often take their opinion from their club or their newspaper then they took it from the coffee-house on the general question of the far brought supply of luxuries one may with advantage read the following passages from the paper and the spectator which begins with the glories of the exchange almost every degree produces something peculiar to it the food often grows in one country the sauce in another the fruits of portugal are corrected by the products of barbados the infusion of a china plant sweetened with the pith of an indian cane the philippic islands give a flavor to our european bowls the single dress of a woman of quality is often the product of a hundred climates the muff and the fan come together from the different ends of the earth the scarf is sent from the torrid zone and the tippet from beneath the pole the brocade petticoat rises out of the mines of peru And the diamond necklace out of the bowels of Indostan. Our ships are laden with the harvest of every climate. Our tables are stored with spices and oils and wines. Our rooms are filled with pyramids of China and adorned with the workmanship of Japan. Our morning's draught comes to us from the remotest corners of the earth. We repair our bodies by the drugs of America and repose ourselves under Indian canopies. My friend Sir Andrew calls the vineyards of France our gardens, and the Spice Islands our hotbeds, the Persians our silk weavers, and the Chinese our potters. England and Wales consumed 11 million pounds of tobacco and sent on no less than 17 millions to the continent, all of which came from the English plantation in Virginia. One other point should be especially noticed— the change in the taste for wine which was brought about during this reign since the days of the black prince and earlier there had been a large english trade with bordeaux the favourite wines in england were the french which passed then as often now under the general name of claret in the year before the english revolution the amount of french wine imported was three and a half times as much as that from spain and portugal together The Methuen Treaty with Portugal, however, decided that the tax upon Portuguese wines admitted into England should always be one-third less than that on French, for which privilege Portugal was to import no woolen goods but English. The old Tories, and especially those in Oxford common rooms, were very strong in favor of their Burgundy, and would gladly have seen the Methuen Treaty cancelled but the result of that treaty was a change in public taste, and for more than a century port reigned supreme, until that in its turn became a sort of emblem of Toryism. One evil followed. The port was much stronger than the claret, but men drank the same quantity with very bad results. A great deal of the hard drinking which distinguished the 18th century can fairly be traced to the Methuen Treaty. Firm and erect, the Caledonian stood. Sweet was his mutton, and his claret good. Thou shalt drink port, the English statesman cried. He drank the poison, and his spirit died. Section 3. National Debt The account of this time would not be complete without some statement of the debt of the country. It was not indeed in this reign— that the practice of making posterity pay began, but in this reign the practice was vigorously carried on. The principle of a national debt is just the same as that of a debt incurred by a private individual. If something has to be done, the advantage of which is not confined to one year, there is no reason that a man should pay for it out of income. It is quite fair to make posterity pay in part for advantages which posterity will enjoy and circumstances may arise which justify placing part of the burden of a war on the future strictly however such a war should be defensive for in self-defence the nation is defending posterity's freedom as well as its own but with respect to other quarrels posterity may be expected to have its own there was a small national debt in england before the revolution Charles the second having taken the money of the goldsmiths and having told them that he would pay interest though he would not repay the principal. The payment of interest was so neglected by the treasury that the owners of the money had well nigh given up hope when the revolution took place. The debt was then acknowledged and became the nucleus of the funds. Whatever blessings the glorious revolution conferred upon England it is to the revolution that we owe the national debt. The system of funding was brought from Holland, and the policy of interference in continental wars was commenced by the revolution. This is not the place to consider how far England was bound in honor to enter upon these wars, or whether the balance of power was a delusion. It is in Queen Anne's reign that we first hear of stocks going up or down, forming what has been described as a national pulse so that a skilful man may be able to tell whether the state of the nation is healthy the creation of the public funds has undoubtedly helped in the formation of a moneyed class in opposition to the landed interests but unfortunately when once the rulers had learnt how easy it was to raise a loan and throw the payment on the future the necessity for care was removed they were spending another generation's money not their own the following table will show with what fatal readiness the lesson was learnt the figures represent millions of pounds loans or posterity's share william's war ending with the peace of reichweck thirteen and a half the spanish succession war three The wars in George II's reign, and including the whole of the Seven Years' War, 86. War of American Independence, 121. Great French or Napoleonic War, 600. In the earlier wars the taxation was nearly equal to the loans, but in the worst and most unnecessary, the American, the taxation did not amount to one-third of the debt incurred the example has been followed also by other nations, and the debts of the world now amount to no less than four billion pounds. The change of public sentiment on the subject of the debt is shown by the fact that Swift thought the amount so great that he was in favor of repudiation. The Whigs always made out that such a policy would have been pursued if the pretender had been restored. Addison, with his usual felicity, describes a dream which fell upon him after a visit to the bank it is a vision of public credit a beautiful virgin whose touch could turn what she pleased to gold magna carta the acts of uniformity toleration and settlement are on the walls she is easily affected by news wastes quickly away and recovers with equal quickness then in a dance entered hideous phantoms two by two at the sight of which the lady fainted they were tyranny and anarchy bigotry and atheism the genius of a commonwealth with a young man about twenty-two years of age he had a sword in his right hand which in the dance he often brandished at the act of settlement a citizen whispered that he saw a sponge in his left hand this was the pretender and the sponge was to wipe out the national debt the scene vanished and a second dance entered of amiable phantoms liberty and monarchy moderation and religion a third person whom addison had then never seen the elector of hanover with the genius of great britain whereupon public credit revived and there were pyramids of guineas Statesmen of the present day see the need of making a provision for repayment, though as money continually decreases in value, the burden continually becomes of less weight in proportion. When the French war ended, the amount was 840, and it is now 780 millions. Woe to England has been the warning of thinkers when the coal-fields are exhausted and the national debt remains unpaid section four strength of parties the clergy as it was in the reign of anne that parties began to assume the shape which they have kept almost to our own times it seems advisable to consider the classes of society from which the two parties respectively drew their strength one must premise that the great bulk of the english people belongs to no party but being as it were between the two sways from one to the other according as their sense of justice or the prejudices of passion may incline them. When the long Parliament met, the bulk of the people were opposed to the court. Twenty years later, at the Restoration, they were as certainly for the Stuarts and as surely at the Revolution against them. We may note also the sudden change in the Queen's reign, when the same mob that had cheered Marlborough shouted for Dr. Sacheverell the same reflex helps to explain sudden changes of our own as well as of other days the strength of the tories lay in the country rather than in the towns in the small boroughs rather than in the large towns in the agricultural rather than in the moneyed interest the tenant farmers were mostly tories almost all the clergy and especially the country clergy were to be found in the tory ranks as an extreme wing of the tory clergy must be ranked the non-jurors those who resigned place rather than take the oath of allegiance to william and mary a sect numerically unimportant but comprising several men who were distinguished for learning and for piety the whigs were strong in the large towns london being especially staunch to them the merchants and bankers as well as most of the small freeholders in the country were whigs A good many of the lords and of the bishops belonged to that party. But this was because the former had been created and the latter appointed by King William. To these must be added the whole body of the dissenters, who were estimated to amount to four percent of the population. As the universities were the recruiting ground of the clergy, we should expect that the Tory party would be strong in them. It was, however, much stronger at Oxford than at Cambridge. Shortly after the accession of George I, at the time of the rising for the old pretender, it was found necessary to send soldiers down to Oxford to keep order. At the same time the king happened to be sending a present of books to the sister university. An Oxford epigram was written. The king, observing with judicious eyes the state of both his universities, to Oxford sent a troop of horse, and why, that learned body wanted loyalty to cambridge books he sent as well discerning how much that loyal body wanted learning a cambridge man replied the king to oxford sent a troop of horse for tories own no argument but force with equal skill to cambridge books he sent for whigs admit no force but argument there was a great difference between the clergy of the towns and the country the london clergy especially were often men of mark but the great majority of the clergy were both in learning and in social position far below the standard of the present day it was estimated that not one benefice in forty was worth a hundred pounds a year so that the passing rich on forty pounds a year of goldsmith's poem would not then have excited the smile that it now does and as the Church of England wisely allows its clergy to marry, there was very general misery and distress among their families. Bishop Burnet claims the credit of having suggested a method of improving their position, first to William and then to Anne. The humane heart of Anne at once approved the suggestion, and Parliament was found quite willing to sanction the plan. In the times before the Reformation it had been the practice to give to the Pope first-fruits and tithes, that is, the whole of the first year's revenue and a tithe of all later years. When Henry VIII pillaged the church, this revenue was seized by the crown, and Burnet's suggestion was to apply this fund to the improvement of the livings of the poorer clergy. It is still called Queen Anne's Bounty. End of section 23